There's something truly special about sitting at a table across from someone when you've been invited into that space. When you get that text message or phone call saying, hey, I would love to just have a meal with you. Come to the celebration. Come to the party. And if it comes from someone who you admire, someone you love, someone you cherish, does that not make you feel loved and cherished and returned? That you are seen by someone who loves you. Seen by someone who wants to share an intimate, vulnerable space with you. But what if you want to be invited, but the door has been slammed in your face? You've been rejected. You've been told you don't belong. You're not welcome. Well, I think it would be like you're back in high school. Do you remember what it was like when you were a freshman in high school? You're in the cafeteria, you're in the line, you're getting your tray of food, and, and you come out of the line and you're immediately hit with this thought. Maybe it's the first time you've ever had the thought, but you're immediately hit with this thought, where can I sit? What table can I belong to? And so you look around the room and you've seen that people have kind of clustered together in different groups. You've got the athletes over here, the band kids over there, the honor roll kids over there, and and you know the drama kids are always going to be up front, right? And you walk out with your tray of food and and you have to find where you're going to belong. It's scary. You take a chance when you go and sit down. Will they look at you weird? Will they say, hey, what are you doing here? Here's the thing I believe. I think that high school cafeteria experience travels with you. It goes into college. It goes into that first job interview when you're sitting across a table and there's an employer on the other side and you're wondering the same questions. Will they let me belong here? Will they let me be a part of what's going on here? It happens in the romantic life when you try to go on a date with someone and you're wondering about the same questions. Do I have a place to belong in their life? It happens in friendships. Wondering, do you have a group of friends who want you to be a part of their table celebration? The high school cafeteria never leaves you. We're all looking for a table to belong to. Because we want a place to belong. And and this thing is so driven in us that we, we crave it, we search for it, we look for it in all sorts of places. Some of you are wondering about that today. Some of you, even when you come to church, maybe this is the first time you've ever been here and you're having that same thought, will they accept me here? Will they let me belong here? Can I be at this table? Some of you have been coming for a very long time and that thought still comes up in your mind of wondering, will they let me be at this table? Will they let me belong here if they knew what I did last night? If they knew of the mistakes I've made. And so we oftentimes put barriers between ourselves. We don't let anyone get too close because we're afraid of being rejected. Sometimes we're so afraid of it that we reject others before they have a chance to reject us. Because we're all 
craving a table to belong at. I've been on the, that feeling, on that side of the table wondering, can I belong? And I've also been the person on the other side who's responsible for closing the door on others. And let me tell you, it is better for your soul to be the one denied than to be the denier. Because it's difficult to look at yourself later on and realize what you've done. And it's painful. And I've discovered two truths in this. The first one is that we all fear rejection. When we're all craving a table to belong at, we all fear, rejection. It's in all of us. So much of our lives is governed around trying to avoid this. And with this is the second truth. I think the reason why we all fear rejection is because it's the most painful experience in in human existence. I know some of you are thinking, man, you did not have to push an eight-pound baby out of you. I know, ladies, that's what you're thinking, and you're right, okay? Physically, that is the most painful thing. But science today is showing that rejection travels on the same neural pathways as physical pain. But it's worse because it lingers. So yes, when my wife was giving birth to our daughter a few months ago, and I I had that thought, wow, I'm really glad I'm not her right now. You know, all men, let's be honest, you had that thought probably when you're in that waiting room with your wives, yes. But here's the thing. There was an immediate turn of joy for her. The pain was forgotten. But rejection is something different. Rejection is something that science shows it lingers in our hearts. It festers like a wound, and sometimes it takes years of therapy to to get over it. And maybe with that truth, we need to have a more private conversation about what happens in the more intimate and private parts of your lives, like the bedroom. See, we all fear rejection because we know how painful it is. And if you've lived a life of rejection and all you wanted was to have a table where you can sit at and belong to, there's this craving then within us of where can we find a place where we can belong? Where can we find a place where we're not going to be turned away? Where someone is going to see us for who we are, for everything about us, and still says, come, have a seat. You're welcome. I think as we're going to be diving into Scripture this morning, we see that Jesus has something to say about that space within our hearts that craves to hear those words. If you want to follow along with where we're going to be, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 today and see what Jesus has to say to us in this space. And So a little recap on where we're at in this story. We're we're following the life story of Jesus, and, and we've been seeing that he's on a journey, and he's traveling from place to place, and he's teaching people a new way to be human. It's all about coming under the loving reign and rule of a God who loves humanity and wants to rescue humanity. And he's going around, and he's performing miracles, and he's teaching these lessons, And he's having these banquets. He's having these feasts. And what's remarkable about this is that he's inviting the wrong crowd to the table. See, everyone had an idea of who's allowed at the table of God and who isn't. And Jesus was going out of his way to break all those rules. 
He's looking for the worst people. There's even a story about a guy named Zacchaeus, that wee little man who's like a Don Corleone mob boss, who even Jesus looks at him and is like, hey, I want to have dinner at your house. Because for Jesus, he was all about breaking the rules. If you look at somebody like, that's a person that Jesus would not love, Jesus is like, let me show you differently. I want to go have dinner with them. Because he wanted to be at the table with people. And here's the thing. You might be sitting there thinking, that's awesome, but not everybody liked that. At this point in the story, we're introduced to a religious group of people who were angry about the fact that Jesus was hanging out with the wrong crowd. We know them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and a couple of other religious groups, and and they're very upset because this is not their vision of what the Messiah was meant to be. They had in their mind that the Messiah would come and he would help them, but, but Jesus is not really interested in them. He's not interested in their agenda. He's not interested in their desires. He's more interested in what God wants. And the things he's saying and the things he's teaching and the way of life he's presenting goes in contrast to their way of life and it's threatening their power, their sense of control. So for them, the people who should have been the representatives of God to the rest of the people, instead they find themselves getting angry with Jesus. Of here's God in the flesh and they're getting angry with him because he's not doing what they want him And so they even say in chapter 15, we're told in verse 1, that as the tax collectors and sinners were drawing all near to him, to Jesus, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. That was a big deal. See, in their mind, they're thinking, you're inviting people to the table who should not belong at the table. You're hanging out with the wrong crowd. And see, they had broken themselves up into table groups, just like we do, where we find our table, and when we find our table, we naturally find those who don't belong at our table, such as when you're in high school. The jocks sit over here, the nerds sit over here, things like that. But as we get older, we still operate in the same way. We find our table, and then we immediately find who is not allowed at our table. We do this on a wide scope of different things. Take politics. Are you Republican or Democrat? Take the pandemic. Are you pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine? Take your generation which you're born in. Are you a millennial or are you a baby boomer? We naturally find our table, and then we immediately look to see who's not allowed at our table. That is the human way of operating. And this is what sin does. Sin in its culmination naturally looks to divide and separate people. And then there comes Jesus. And he's presenting a new way of life, a new community. And he's inviting the people who should have been denied. He's saying, come and join in at the table fellowship. And this is what's so radical about Christianity. It's not who's not allowed into the fellowship with God. It's, It's those who are. And that's what's so surprising about Christianity. That's what's so surprising about Jesus. And that's what angers people so much because of who he's letting into the table fellowship with Jesus. And Jesus is trying to explain to them what he's about. How he's come for the sick and needy to bring them righteousness. And and so he starts to tell this story. 
to try to get it across to his opposition, what he's about, how he's playing into the grand scheme of human history. And it's a story which you probably have heard because it's a rather famous story. It's a story about a rich father and his two sons. The father has this abundance of property and land. And and one day, one of his sons comes up to him. And his youngest son says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, understand, that is a dramatic thing to say. Basically, this youngest son comes up to his dad and says, Dad, I know one day you're going to die and we're going to split your inheritance 50-50, but you know what? I don't really like you. I don't want to be part of this family anymore. So why don't you just go ahead and give me the inheritance now and I'll get out of here. You'll never hear from me again because you're dead to me. I mean, wow. The father in that day and age in a culture of shame and honor like that would have had full justification to beat the tar out of his son right then. Probably still true today. (laughs) Some of you fathers of teenagers are probably thinking, yes, I've had that conversation with my son, you know. Uh, This is, I had my own conversations with my dad and like this, okay. So this happens. Now, this father doesn't do that. Rather instead, he complies. It's like, yeah, sure, if you want to treat me like that, I'll give you what you want. And so this son leaves town, he, he travels to a new country, and he just spends all his wealth and, and reckless living. He, he's just having parties, like, woo, crazy, let's spend all this money. And then a famine arrives, and he's got nothing left, so he's got to find a job. He's lost everything he had before, and, and the only job he can get is to be a servant at a pig farm. And so he spends his day feeding pigs, and the only food he has to afford to feed himself is the same food he feeds to the pigs. It's a miserable situation, one where he's hit rock bottom. And he remembers how his father treated his servants, how they were treated far better than him. And he knows he's got to go back and and confront his father if he wants to be able to live. And he's like, I'm not going to be able to be a son to this man who I hurt, but maybe he'll treat me like a servant. In fact, he comes up with this plan in verse 18. He says, I will rise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he travels back home with this plan in mind. It's not to manipulate his father. It's to beg for mercy from his father. He's like, just treat me like a servant. And so he's on his way back. But we're told this remarkable thing happens as he's traveling back. It's in verse 20. That while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so in that society, you got this man who has been insulted, who has every right to hurt his son, but he shows mercy to his son. His son goes off and squanders his living and the blessings that his father gave him. His son comes back and we find that the father has pretty much been waiting day after day on the front porch, just hoping, praying for his son to return. And when he sees his son far off in the distance, he takes off running, completely humiliates himself because men do not run in that day and age. And he just takes off running and he just embraces his son and he's just crying and he's kissing all over him. He's like, I'm so glad to see you again. You don't know how long I've been waiting for you to return home. 
And the son is trying to, to talk over his father. He's like, dad, dad, stop. You don't understand. I, I'm sorry. I, I messed up. I, I, I want to be back into your family, but I, I'm not good enough to be a son. So I want you to just treat me as a servant. But here's what the father does. He kind of interrupts him. And in verse 22, the father's calling out to everyone. He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. This is what resurrection looks like. This is what following Jesus looks like. Yes, it's like a lifelong journey, but it's also an invitation into the celebration of God, into the party that God is hosting at his table. And this father, he has to celebrate because this son has come back. He has recognized his own need for grace and mercy in his life. And this father, he can't help but celebrate. So he's like, kill the cow. We're having burgers tonight. And everyone's like, woo, yeah, because this is a wonderful thing that is going on. And this father, seeing the, the graciousness of God, cannot help but to respond with generosity. Because when God is on the move, we should respond to his graciousness with our own generosity. Now, here's the thing. Here's what's so shocking about this story. Jesus is telling this story to his opposition, to those who don't like him. And you remember in this story, there's two brothers that are mentioned in the beginning. We've looked at the younger brother, but where's the older brother? Well, he's out in the field serving his father. And he comes in late at night, he's tired, he's worked hard, and he finds this celebration taking place. And who should it be for but his younger brother, the brother who betrayed them, the brother who hurt him, who hurt his dad, and then left like a wrecking ball and left the older brother left to pick up the pieces and restore the family. And so this older brother, we're told, when he sees this, he was angry, and he refused to go in. He refused to sit at the table of the celebration of what God was doing. And we're told that the father came out and entreats him. The father's begging him, hey, please, son, come and join in the celebration of what was going on. Come and be a part of the table and what's going on in this location, what God is doing. The older brother responds. He says, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice he doesn't even say, when my brother returns. No, he says, this son of yours. He says it with a, an air of disgust. He's angry at his younger brother. He says, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You threw a party for a man who is your enemy, who destroyed your life, who destroyed everything we once knew, and you welcome him back to your table? See, this, this older brother, he can't accept that. And in some ways, he's wrapped up his entire identity on the basis of being better than his younger brother. It's the same language that we hear today when people are like, I'm good, I'm a good person because I don't, I'm not in prison or I'm not committing some heinous crimes. 
Or I'm a good person because you, could, you should really see the rest of my family. They're a mess. And so I'm the good person. Or I'm a good person with God. I'm good with God because of all the things I do for God. It's the same language. This guy has wrapped up his identity and who he is by being better than someone else. The person who he is denying at his table. And the father, he's upset about this. He's trying to get through to the pride of his son. And that's really what the issue is here. It's pride. It's this older brother who cannot accept what God is doing in his younger brother. And it's so common today. See, it's so common for us to step into that same prideful space. When others have hurt us, when others have hurt the ones we care about, when others think differently than us, act differently than us, believe differently than us because they sit at a different table than us, it's so easy for us to act the exact same way. My favorite scholar, N.T. Wright, says this. He said, Pride notoriously is the great cloud which blots out the sun of God's generosity. If I reckon that I deserve to be favored by God, not only do I declare that I don't need his grace, mercy, and love, but I imply that those who don't deserve it shouldn't have it. That's the older brother's problem. And it's so easy for us to fall into the same trap of thinking we're right, we're better, because someone is against us, someone's not at our table. We can all get that way. Now the father, he tries to get through his older son. And we're told in verse 31, where the father tells his oldest son, he says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And with that, Jesus ends the story. And I'll be honest, that drives me nuts. I don't like the fact that Jesus ends the story and it's not really an ending of the story because we don't know what happens next. Does the father you know, convince his older son to step into a place of humility? Does the older son see what God is doing in his brother and, and he comes to join in at the table? Is his family reunited? Well, we're not told. Jesus kind of leaves it open for us to finish the story. Because in this story, remember, he's telling about the grand narrative of all of human existence. And Jesus putting himself in a very clear spot. He's the father. And when we recognize that, what we're seeing is that Jesus welcomes all at his table who humbly see their need for God's mercy. Jesus welcomes all at his table who humbly see their need for God's mercy. And so if Jesus is the father in this story, then it really begs the question, who are we? This is the grand narrative of all of human existence. God has brought in his kingdom. He's inviting everyone to come and live under the loving reign and rule of God. It's a, a table party. But are we like the, the younger son who humbly sees their need for God's mercy and grace 
and come to God begging to be part of the table? Or are we more like the older brother who's quick to turn people away who have hurt us, who think differently than us, who act differently than us, maybe even believe a little differently than us? Because more often than not, if we're honest, we're the second choice. We see it all around us. It's how we operate. And it's not what God intended. It's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is part of the celebration. Saying, you know what? I need mercy. I need God's grace. And then looking at the people next to you and realizing they need the same amount of grace and mercy. And maybe seeing that there's an obligation on your part to be a part of extending that out to others. Because what Jesus started is something completely brand new. It's a new way to be human. And there's only one table now in existence. It's the table that Jesus formed. So all the other party lines, all the other barriers we tend to put up between one another, that cannot exist in the fellowship with Christ. But this is how we operate. And so this is about a change in understanding of what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that the person sitting next to you right now needs as much grace and mercy as you do. Because here's the thing, when you understand that Jesus is hosting these parties and he's inviting the wrong crowd to be guests, what we see is that when we're invited to be a guest at the table that Christ is putting together, there's an obligation on our end to become hosts, inviting new guests to come in to be part of it. Because once you're at the table, you realize, you know what, there's a seat empty next to me that I need to invite someone else to this table as well. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's to join in in the celebration of what's going on with him. Because in Jesus is the ultimate place where we can find our belonging, that thing that we're all craving, that space that we're hungry for. We find that we were designed for it to be found only in Jesus and nowhere else, only in Jesus. So the question is, who are you? Sometimes we're a bit of both of the older brother and the younger brother. I I fully admit that. That's true in my life a lot. But ask yourself, who are you? If you recognize that within your heart is that craving to find your table, your space to belong, then maybe you'll see that the person next to you has that same craving. Maybe you'll see that the person who drives you nuts has that same craving. Your coworker, your family member, that friend. We're all looking for that same space. And if you recognize that Jesus has offered you a spot, how are you going to extend it out to others? Won't you pray with me? Jesus, I'm, I was moved by the last song we sung. Who am I to be worthy of your love? 
Who am I that you would save my soul? Who am I that you would invite me to be a part of your table? Because I'm ashamed sometimes to admit that many times I'm like the older brother. I have my own tendencies sometimes, Father, to put up barriers, to put up restrictions upon others. Because if they look differently than me, act differently than me, whatever it is, Father, I'm just as prone as anyone else to do that. And I am sorry because that's not the gospel way. And I recognize that here's an invitation for us to come into a new way of life. And so, Father, I will be the first to confess and admit to where I am like the older brother. And I hope I'm not alone. And I hope as we come to confess that there are areas and tendencies in our heart to restrict others, to, to block others from the table of God, that as we come to realize that, that you would break our hearts for this. And that you would invite us into something new. Change us into the people who are hungry, looking for others to invite into your fellowship and to your joy. Father, I want to be that kind of person. I want us to be that kind of church because this community needs it. And it's what you've established. And Father, I ask as well for those in this room who are questioning or looking for a place to belong, who have all their life they have felt rejected, I pray that in this moment they might see how deeply you love them that they might see that there's an invitation here given by you to come and belong at your table. It is in your name I pray. Amen.